1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies.
3: In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of Blank Checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects.
0: Now sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're
3: joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1941. A Hollywood director tries to find heart, and they send him back. The film... Sullivan's Travels. Hey, everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. <laughs> I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. <laughs> And we are not in the same room, but I think that was a pretty valiant effort on uh, synchronizing our voices. Um, This is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Today we are talking about, oh, a real classic here. Uh, This is a film called Sullivan's Travels, directed by Preston Sturgis. But before we get into that film... We are going to talk about last week's film, which is, of course, 12 Angry Men. Amy, people were fired up about this episode. Yeah,
0: people love 12 Angry Men. Peep, there is a love fest happening for 12 Angry Men. It is 12 beloved movie viewers. I guess more like 12 million beloved movie viewers in favor of 12 Angry Men. When the Unsulled Facebook group threw it up as their usual poll, like, does this belong on the list? A thing that has tanked most Altman films, or all of all Altman films, Altman is tagged. It was near unanimous, which made Frank Paul joke, guys, if ever we should be unanimous on a verdict, dot, 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 dot.
3: <laughs> there was one comment that jumped out at me that Lance Davis wrote. We talked last week about uh, Spike Lee, and I was saying like how I felt the similarity to 12 Angry Men and Do the Right Thing. It took place on the hottest day of the year. It was dealing with race. And Lance pulled out this really amazing quote that Spike Lee gave After the death of Sidney Lumet, he said, we lost a master filmmaker yesterday. There could have been no inside man without the superb Dog Day Afternoon. He was one of the best storytellers. My Lumet Joints, The Anderson Tapes, Failsafe, The Verdict, Prince of the City, Network, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico. The awards are all about a select group's opinions. Fuck the Oscars. Sidney Lumet deserves them, but he didn't get it. His great work lives on with us forever. Much, much more important than an Oscar. You dig. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it's interesting when he mentions that. I didn't realize that Sidney Le- never won an Oscar, but these films that he just mentioned are, they're, they're looming giants in American cinema. And, uh, I'm glad that Spike Lee finally got his Oscar, but, uh, It is interesting to see, like, sometimes directors go completely unnoticed, and I think that actually comes into today's episode, where we'll be talking about Preston Sturges a bit.
0: It's true. I mean, I kind of suspect that some of the people who voted no on 12 Angry Men, the very tiny, tiny minority, they didn't even vote no because they don't like 12 Angry Men. They just voted no because there's so much Sidney Lumet they love that should be put on the list. I mean, one of the people in particular is Benjamin Tula He said, this is a great movie. It is a set piece that is as as near to perfection as possible in execution, but- It's my fourth favorite Lumet. My first favorite is Dog Day Afternoon. And it feels criminal that that is not on the list, which excellent point. Oh, my God. I love Dog Day Afternoon so much. He's just one hit after another all the way to the whiz, man. Are we going to get the whiz on the list?
3: (laughs) You know, and I also, uh, by the way, I want that whiz on the list. You heard me last (laughs) week, you know. Uh, Mike Conrad is really helping us out because Mike Conrad is a, a high school film teacher, and with the school shutdown, he was forced to move to distant learning. So he assigned Twelve Angry Men not only to give this film uh, the students for screening, but to give them the opportunity to use unspooled as an additional resource. So we appreciate that. And he, uh, in the prior week, he coincidentally assigned Rear Window. So what should we do next? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Sullivan's Travels kind of fits in the in the vibe. I think we are. You know, Amy and I, uh, unfortunately, uh, have this uncanny ability to kind of create a lineup that does mirror what's going on in the world. Or maybe just great films are always kind of telling us the story of America. But uh, I feel like Sullivan's Travels is another interesting thing to discuss if you want to keep on assigning some unspooled films.
0: I love that. And I also love that Mike Conrad is continuing to teach and doing a a really kick-ass job at that. And while we're, you know, complimenting and hailing our listeners who are doing awesome stuff right now, I have to give a shout out to Joni Canaday who I was tweeting with earlier and he is delivering the mail while we are all here as a person who's been getting nothing but panic packages as I don't leave my house. Jody, you are one of my heroes right now as one of the people who helps connect this world. So thank you for doing what you do. And I love that we can keep you company for a couple hours every week doing it.
3: I I, I can't say it better myself. You know, Jeff Sargent is a guy that I know very well. Jeff is, uh, he was a constant, uh, Audience member at a show I do out here in L.A. called Crash Test. He's also an avid listener of Unspooled, and he wrote before he rewatched Twelve Angry Men. um, He was in the middle of a six-week stint on a jury for murder, and so Jeff, who I love, uh, talked about how he was the Henry Fonda on a jury. He said that he had. A paper ballot that was 12 votes for no liability, but it seemed too easy and he wanted to talk about it a bit. And eventually, because they talked about it, they got the plaintiff a small settlement. So we have not only a listener to Unspooled, but a person here showing that 12 angry men is still happening in the world right now. Uh, forcing people to sit down and talk can actually have a positive effect. Now, Amy, I want to remind people that I know uh, times are tight right now, and uh, if you do have the inclination to want to follow along with us, you can do it. And you can go visit our amazing store at uh, podswag.com, where you can find an amazing poster of all of our unspooled movies. You can check them off. You can put it on your wall. You can see how far you've gone. It's sort of like uh, how many days you spent in prison. We're all in this stay-at-home lifestyle now. So maybe this poster is more, uh, more needed than ever to put this up and see where you are at on this list um and also you can head over to tpublic.com amy and i are going to be launching some sort of a special shirt uh where we're going to be giving uh the money to charity but if you have any ideas maybe to uh to kind of give us for a special uh charity shirt right now send them in to us at twitter or wherever you can reach out to amy and i you can yeah you can reach out to us we're accessible people and amy i will tell you um i've been doing this thing Every night, uh, I have this texting app. It's totally free. It's not like fans only or cameo or any of that bullshit. It's just social media. It's free, uh, where I've been texting out a movie a night for people. And it's been really fun. And you actually helped me with one of my movies this week. You suggested that I tell people to see Banana Split. And every night, I'm giving out either suggestion of uh, a book or a movie, or a TV series, I actually gave out our producer, uh, Josh. He created the Richmond Music Anthology, and that was out there, and a lot of people have been loving that. So if you want to get on my uh, my bandwagon here and get a pick a night, because you are bored out of your mind, uh, I'm happy to do it, uh, and you can just text me, uh, PIX, uh, at... <laughs> 917-877-0657. And they're picks with a K, not just picks with a T. So uh 877 That's 917-877-0657. just, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to do a community service. I
0: appreciate that. And I'm glad you picked Banana Split. I cannot recommend that movie enough. It came out, it would have come out in theaters last week, but you know, dot dot dot. And it's um, written by Hannah Marks, who also stars in the film. It's really fantastic. I think y'all are gonna love it. And also Josh knows this. I've been listening to his Richmond anthology nonstop and texting him. Why is snow informer on here? But then jamming out and dancing to it anyway.
3: You know, let me ask you a question, Amy. We both have been uh, staying at home. Have you found anything that you've been enjoying? I mean, I know that we have a lot of work to do for unspooled, but anything that you've been watching that you like,
0: you know, I have been going through the Burt Lancaster films, which I think are leaving Criterion this week. Um, I have not really seen a lot of Burt Lancaster films. He's one of those actors that I know was like big old hunk man, but that's about all I know about him. Um, And I watched From Here to Eternity, and I watched The Swimmer, which is amazing. It turns out everybody in my life is obsessed with The Swimmer, and I've never never even heard about it.
3: The Swimmer is a great movie. I once caught it on at a bar where I was just... You know, it was on behind somebody's head. And I was like, what is this movie? And someone was like, it's The Swimmer. You must see this movie. And it is fantastic.
0: <laughs> I need to see next the one that is Burt Lancaster's story of his own life, how he was a circus acrobat. So I'm on I'm on a Ooh, real yeah. Burt pick. What about you?
3: I love, uh, you know, for me, I've just been... Um, I've been kind of enjoying catching up with some films that I didn't get to see. Originally, The Art of Self-Defense, I really, really loved. I think we may have even talked about it a little bit uh, last week. But um, The Art of Self-Defense was great. I really enjoyed uh, seeing Lynn Shelton's movie, The Sword of Trust. The Death of Dick Long is kind of like a redneck Fargo, and I thought that was really uh, super fun. And and right now, I've been enjoying watching Escaping from Polygamy, which is uh, kind of like that Leah Remini Scientology show, but about polygamous, and it's awesome.
0: But you have seen Tiger King, right?
3: I'm, I've watched the first episode, but I feel like that's the only way that we greet each other now in <laughs> uh, in stay at home terms. So I'm kind of rebelling against it. I'm like, all right, do I have to watch it? All right, sure, I will. Wow,
0: this is like this is like the wire of reality shows. So you got to catch up. <laughs> so last week, our call to action was, of course, Sullivan's travel themed, and the question was. Even if you haven't seen Sullivan's Travels before, we gave you the setup that it is about a director who goes on an emotional spirit quest so he can come back to Hollywood and be a better director. Our challenge to you was what modern day director do you think needs to go on a spirit quest and
4: why? Let's hear what you said.
1: I think Zack Snyder should go on a
4: road trip in search of the world's preeminent optometrist and be thoroughly tested for colorblindness.
3: I would send Quentin Tarantino on a road trip to learn how people actually talk to each other.
4: M. Night Shyamalan. He has to learn not to get swallowed up by the Hollywood system, but he does when he starts making movies worse than signs, you know. But then he has to learn to get back in touch with his roots, and this road trip provides him inspiration for an original movie that turns out to be his newest, biggest hit.
3: I gotta say, I take a lot of offense to that Quentin Tarantino one. He is, like, look, do people talk like Aaron Sorkin talks? No. I think that that's the the choice and the direction of a great screenwriter is to create a language that's so specific. Like, Mammoth doesn't have the, the, the conversational tone of most normal people. I, I think that, like, we can afford that. I think what we don't want to afford or we don't want to bring in is people trying to ape people like Mamet or people like Sorkin, or people like Tarantino, because that's what really makes my skin crawl.
0: (laughs) I noticed that you did not stick up for Zack Snyder.
3: Release the Snyder (laughs) Cut, Amy! Release it! It's going to be so good! America doesn't want us to see the best thing in the world. It's going to be so good! (gasps)
0: Okay. (laughs) You just made me cower in my living room far away from you, so congratulations on it.
3: (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, Amy, let's get into it. We're talking today about a film uh, by a director that is one of my personal favorites. It is called Sullivan's Travels. It's directed by Preston Sturgis. So let's unspool it. The year is 1941. The war in Europe continues to escalate and civilian casualties skyrocket due to the use of bombing. The United States joins World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Glenn Miller's Chattanooga Choo Choo is awarded the first gold record a bill is passed to declare the fourth thursday in november as thanksgiving day and fdr is inaugurated for his third term popular movies of the time are citizen kane dumbo the maltese falcon and today's film sullivan's travels it comes in number 61 on the afi 2007 list it was absent from the previous version um let's take a listen to some of the amazing dialogue
5: Nothing the matter with me, but a little fever. Even if I did get sick, they could have sent me to some free hospital or something, wherever they sent you. Would have been very interesting. They
4: give you a nice free burial, too, at Potter's Field. Free
5: Spiegel. burial? Why does everybody exaggerate everything so much? I've got a little cold in my head. You take a dose of salts. there you are.
4: It's because you're a very valuable man. Bourgeois.
5: You make
4: very lovely pictures. what Well, you do. It's
5: a funny thing how everything keeps shoving me back to Hollywood or Beverly Hills. <coughs> Oh, this monstrosity we're riding in, almost like, like, gravity. As if some force were saying, get back where you belong. You don't belong out here in real life, you foe to you.
4: You're a little feverish.
5: Maybe there's a universal law that says, stay put. As you are, so shall you remain. Maybe that's why traps are always in trouble. They don't vote, they don't pay taxes, they violate the law of nature. You look very pretty in that outfit. Maybe that's why they don't want trailer colonies. Or am I getting a bit profound?
4: You're getting a bit hot.
5: Yeah, oh, it is very cool. But nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to find out how it feels to be in trouble. Without friends. Without credit. Without checkbook. Without name. Alone.
3: And I'll go with you.
5: How could I be alone
3: if you're with me? Amy, who's in the film? What's it about?
0: Sullivan's Travels. It is our one film on this list by one of my all-time favorite writer-directors, Preston Sturgis. It is a comedy about a director named John L. Sullivan. He specializes in musicals with names like Ants in Your Pants or Ants in Your Plants. I can never tell what they're saying. Ants in Your Pants. I think it's pants. (laughs) Ants in Your Pants. I mean, I have ants in my plants. Of 1939. (laughs) And he decides he doesn't want to make dumb comedies anymore. There's a depression happening. Stuff is going wrong. He wants to make the serious, art house, Oscar-winning, heavyweight, miserable list film. So he has to go on the road to learn about misery. He brings along with him Veronica Lake, just paying a failed actress called the girl and all of his studio people who are just watching him to make sure he doesn't get in trouble. And of course he absolutely gets into trouble. And it's, it wasn't even on 97 list. What was wrong with those 97 voters, man? They were whack. I, I will say my history with Sullivan's travels is I watched this movie. Um, I think in the first film class I ever took in college. And it has been a deep favorite of mine. Ever since then, it blew my mind. Preston Sturgis is top ten, I think, filmmakers in Hollywood. He he's done a gazillion movies. This is maybe his most like likable and big hearted and warmest and loveliest, which is, is saying something. His other films are even crazier. I, how you can, This list would be invalid without a Preston Sturgis. I'm just going to put my foot down on
3: that. You know, Amy, I can't agree with you more. I love Preston Sturgis, and he holds a very special place in my heart because he was the person that opened the door to me for older films. Like, I found his movies to be so incredibly funny and timely and really alive. I think it's the hope of anyone making a comedy that it has legs for as long as this film certainly has. And I would only disagree with you in saying that I feel like this is the most inside baseball Preston Sturges film that he's done. Like, The Miracle at Morgan's Creek is is kind of um, Capra-esque in a way, but it has, like, a a funny... I mean, all of his movies have, like, a very... um, That movie
0: is screwed up. That movie is screwed up, and I can't believe they managed to get that movie made in the 40s.
3: Well, that's what I think he kind of does. He takes, like, a very simple premise and then slightly skews it, right? Yeah. I mean, um, for
0: people who don't know what The Miracle of Morgan's Creek is about, a young girl goes to a party for, for soldiers who are going abroad for the war and winds up pregnant and doesn't know who the dad is. I mean... That is a movie he made in 1944 when you couldn't have people sleeping in the same beds. Wow. <laughs> this guy pushed the
3: buttons. You know, Preston Sturgis has this amazing ability to create these really timeless comedies. And I think sometimes it's a hard thing to do. You know, a lot of comedies are based in the now and, you know, to travel for so many years and still be relevant and still uh, make you laugh the same way. Like, I can appreciate, uh, you know, Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, and I really think it has jokes in it and it's funny and the physical comedy is really great not to say that's the best comedy of all time but it doesn't make me laugh like this movie makes me laugh and more importantly watching this film i was thinking about the world that we're living in right now you know we're in this stay-at-home lifestyle and i've seen so many people wanting to reach out for comedy and 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 watch these classic comedies or new comedies they want to be entertained they don't want to be navel gazing and this whole movie is really kind of taking this idea of what people want and what entertainment should be and and serving it up in a really interesting way. And I, I feel like this movie, the point it's making is so valid uh, to today. You know, it's it's really, it, it just blows me away. I love it.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's such an interesting movie about making movies. You know, when it comes out in 1941, we're a generation now into Hollywood. Like there are directors who have come and gone and died and they get joked about here. Directors who have committed suicide because they bottomed out directors who are old timey, you know, uh, they make jokes in here about how nobody wants to watch those Keystone cop comedies anymore. This is Hollywood in 1941, looking back on who they already were. I mean, it's, almost nostalgic and, and historical in that way. You know, it's to me a very early example of people being like, we don't do that Hollywood anymore. This is what Hollywood is today. Those people are gone. And yet in the middle of that, I feel like you hear the Hollywood of the future because of the way Preston Sturgis writes jokes and dialogue. A lot of the films we've been watching that are older, that are comedies, they exist on a wavelength that, yeah, doesn't quite, it isn't exactly what we're used to today, that Marx Brothers style even Chaplin's kind of balletic style, we don't really have a template for that today. We really don't even have that many Philadelphia stories, just people try to take notes from Philadelphia story. But here, let's just even listen to the first one of the first scenes from Sullivan's travels, which is Sullivan explaining what he wants to do. And the way this dialogue goes, like bing, 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 bing. You hear that in today's movies, you hear that in Cohen, like this is still alive.
6: You see the symbolism of it? Capital and labor destroy each other. It teaches a lesson, a moral lesson. It has social significance. Who wants to see that kind of stuff? It gives me the creeps. Tell them how long it played in the music hall.
5: It was held over a fifth week.
6: Who goes to the music hall? Communists. Communists? This picture's an answer to communists. It shows we're awake and not dunking our heads in the sand like a bunch of ostriches. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little sex. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little sex. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with a world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner? with people slaughtered like sheep maybe they'd like to forget that then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall for the ushers It died in pittsburgh like a dog what do they know in pittsburgh they know what they like if they know what they like they wouldn't live in pittsburgh
3: (laughs) that line makes me laugh so hard i love it so much if they knew what they liked they wouldn't live in pittsburgh no offense to people who live in pittsburgh i've been there it's a very lovely city
4: (laughs)
0: yeah some of my best friends are from pittsburgh I mean, it's almost impossible to even pull a clip from Sullivan's travels because people are talking so fast and on top of each other that I could never even find a clip that ended. It just went. It was just yelling from from start to finish. But it's so clever and it's so fast. And part of the reason, of course, why I name dropped the Coens is, you know, the Coen brothers took the name of the fictitious movie in here that John Sullivan wants to make called "O oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and made their own movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? with it. But that's not even, even though that's, I think, their biggest nod, To how much they are influenced by the surge style of comedy. Honestly, all of their comedies, even before this, have a sense of this. You know, when you're talking about hula hoops, it's a lot like Sullivan talking about Sullivan. You know, when you're talking about even their film that they made a few years ago that was about the Hollywood studio system. They're using that like electric wire energy that he has. Just a thousand people saying the smartest thing in the room and disagreeing with each other.
3: Well, I also say that, yes, they are definitely influences on the Coen brothers, but I'd also say that their influences go out across comedy because their dialogue doesn't seem performative. And there is this kind of cadence that we're so familiar with in films of the forties or the thirties where it's like, you said that, well, I'll go over here. Well, I never, you didn't, well, you should have, you know, and it's like, and it's, and it's funny, even the, the Marx brothers has that, but this movie, it's rapid fire dialogue, but it's not with that, um, that energy. It feels like real people. And I think you can see that in, you know, in a Seth Rogan movie. I think you can see that in uh the Apatow films. It's this cast of characters that always traveled with him. They have this real rapport and they're really smooth with each other.
0: No, I love that. I think that's actually like the perfect analogy. Because yeah, this isn't everybody getting hammered into the same Sorkin style of saying dialogue. He's about the every character in here is a character. They're individuals and they're all oddballs in their own way, and they're very unique. And you're exactly right. Exactly like Judd Apatow. He had his favorites that he put in film after film after film after film. The one that I really love is Jimmy Conlon. He's the guy who shows up at the prison who's kind of like softer and nicer than everybody else in the prison. The guy with yes. the chin and the giant eyes and the crazy hair. I love him. And every time he shows up on screen, I just get so happy. Ugh. I mean, he picks people. He's almost like Altman in that way, too. Like, here are my faves.
1: Life is a highway.
2: Hey, everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinas. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy fifth. Fifteenth anniversary! Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another fifteen years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Ruba. They should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba. Right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yes, Ruba. Go do. do. That's right, Ruba. Go do.
3: You know and I think what I really was impressed by is this movie, like a lot of the great films on the AFI list, are incredibly autobiographical. Like, this is about something that he was going through, something that he felt, um, and you can see it in this film. Like, this is about a director who feels like, I'm stuck making these comedies, and even though they were subversive comedies, you know, is he adding anything to the bigger picture? You know, is it actually something that holds up? Is it something that, you know, would be on the AFI list? And truthfully, it wasn't. Like, he it took a long time before he got on this list, even though it was incredibly respected. But it's, you know, we see that comedies are hard to get on this list.
0: I mean, that's fair. Like, it's interesting to go back and realize that when Sullivan's Travels came out, it was considered lesser Sturgis, which only makes sense given, you know, how his career was. I mean, this is a dude who writes a screenplay in 1936 called The Power and the Glory. And everybody was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. To the point that Orson Welles said that he watched Power and the Glory over and over and over again when he was trying to make Citizen Kane. And so Preston Sturgis uses his clout to say, I want to be a director. He's really one of those early people who says, I'm a writer director. That's what I am. And he's actually, I think even, he's the first person I believe to even have his name on screen as a writer director. I think that was with the great McGinty that it never ever before said in the opening credits, Written and directed by until it was Preston Sturgis. So we have him to thank for all the people in film school. Like, I have to be a writer-director. That's the only way to be. But that said, he has this breakout that is almost impossible to put into context. The closest context I have for it is almost like when Judd Apatow comes out and he's suddenly like written or directed or touched on or helped produce a thousand comedies that just explode into the zeitgeist. That's who Preston Surgis was, but solo. I mean, in 1940, he has The Great McGinty and Christmas in July, both crazy, interesting, fascinating hits.
3: Then in 41,
0: he's got Sullivan's Travels, Lady Eve, and The Palm Beach Story, another, like, just three classics. Then he's got Morgan's Creek. Then he's got Hail the Conquering Hero. And he's almost one of those people who suffers for the same thing that I try to keep myself in check on, which is you think that they are so genius that you're always disappointed by them. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yes, like, totally. Like
0: the Coens. I'm always disappointed by a Cohen's movie the first time I see it, or a Tarantino movie. And then I see it twice, and then I'm like, oh, I decided to see you for what you are. And Sullivan's Travels comes out, and they're like, this isn't completely rule-breaking. This is just brilliant. And they're like a little upset that it's just brilliant.
3: You know, I think what you're describing is the sign of a great film. Most films that I truly love pay off dividends every time you watch. Um I think you put Kubrick in that camp as well. Um, you know, we're talking about a list that really, I think, salutes Billy Wilder. You know, in an aggressive way, uh, but really doesn't give that same uh, honor to Preston Sturges. And I would argue that Preston Sturges' films, and as much as I love Billy Wilder, and I really do, I think they are—they uh, hold up in a way that's a, a lot more interesting to a certain degree. I think that uh, Billy Wilder is making great, incredibly uh you know funny comedies and and obviously a noir, but I think Preston Sturgis are is making films that feel, you know, alive now, you know, so many years later.
0: I mean it's if you're if you're if you're putting a shot of whiskey to my head and saying, would you rather have the Lady Eve or the Palm Beach story on this list instead of some like it hot, I would say yes.
3: I love the Lady Eve, and I think you can give a shout out to you know Barbara Stanwyck, who is just fantastic in this, who also Uh, was up to star in this film as well. Uh, I went to Veronica Lake, who I think is uh, really good in this movie. Um, She's, you know, obviously, in a lot of the advertising, the focal point of the film, which I thought was really interesting because I would argue this movie is less about her, although a lot of the posters really hone in on her as the uh, the front-facing person of this film.
0: I know, which is so weird because she really was just becoming a movie star when this film came out. She wasn't really a movie star yet. This is maybe the movie that made her a star. But yeah, the posters are her hair. And if you've never seen a Veronica Lake movie, you still have seen her hair. Her hair is famous. I actually even went on YouTube and I was like... "Um, how many Veronica-like hair tutorials are there? Because her hair is famous for being this blonde <laughs> thing that swooshes over one eye. It's called the peekaboo wave. It goes over your eye and then down in these curls. They ripped it off for Jessica, Jessica Rabbit. You know, picture that hair, picture it blonde, then picture it on a poster. And they're just like, that'll sell the movie. This girl has great hair. Because well, I think it it's was a hard movie to rare. sell. Yeah.
3: Yeah, well, but yeah. I think it's a hard movie to sell. It's a movie about Hollywood. It's a movie about a director being dissatisfied about being a successful director, it's it's a millionaire saying, "I, I, you know, I need to <laughs> change the direction that I'm living in." It's a, it's a really unrelatable premise. I think as we've become more savvy as an audience, we see films like The Player and can understand like, uh, you know, this idea. There's TV shows, you know, there's a great Jay Moore TV show called like Action. You know, we we now embrace this idea of like the other side of Hollywood, but this is like a very unique. And I think very true point of view. I think that most creative people always feel like, oh, I wish I could be doing something else. You know, I think, you know, whether it's comedians who want to be rock stars, rock stars who want to be comedians, you know, dramatic actors who want to do comedy and uh, your regular comedic actors who want to do drama. It's like, we're always fighting to do that other thing. Um, and I think that that's not necessarily a crowd-pleasing, like, get behind this idea, people. It's, it's, a, it's a very unique niche uh, you know, story It's a very personal story
0: I mean, that's fair I do rag all the time on Appetows This is 40 for being like My biggest problem is people send me too many free cupcakes and I'm like, come on <laughs> Like, really? You made a whole movie about how you're so sad That people send you too many cupcakes And then you eat them and your wife yells at you? Okay And I can understand Like, yeah, you go see this movie It's wild to think that the Depression was still so major when this film comes out in 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 1941, it's scary because the depression was, what, 12 years old at that point? Um, uh-huh. The stock market crash had happened 12 years before, but it was still going on. And yeah, here's a director whose biggest problem is that he's worth over a million dollars to his studio, but they just want him to make, you know, comedies. And I think that's why I love scenes like, say, this one where he takes Veronica Lake to the house and um, to his mansion for the first time. And she's just mad at him. It's not a scene where this girl, to set up her character for a bit, if you haven't seen it, she's um, she's Hollywood poor in that she's an actress who hasn't made it out here. She lives in a rental house. She's, you know, spending 35 cents when she first meets him to feel slightly like a big shot, but she's not rich at all. She's failed out of Hollywood and she's going back home. He takes her to his mansion and here's a guy that she thought was poor. She finds out he's rich. And instead of being dazzled, she's just mad at him.
4: i had kind of a for you. You yeah. have? Not in that thing. I liked you better as a tramp.
5: I can't help what kind of people you like.
4: It's funny. I suppose I ought to be very happy for you. As if you'd just struck oil or something. Instead of that, I'm sore.
5: Well, don't frown. You're making lines in your face.
4: Taking all the joy out of life. I was all through with this kind of stuff. I mean, I knew I'd never have it. But there was no envy in my heart. I'd found a friend who'd swiped a car to take me home. Now I'm right back where I started. Just an extra girl having breakfast with a director. Only I didn't used to have breakfast with him. Maybe that was my trouble.
5: Did they ever ask you to? No. Well, then don't pat yourself on the back.
4: That
0: tiny, by the way, casting couch joke in there is so bitter and so funny and so dark and so a thousand different emotions in one.
3: I wanted to get your take on something else about this film. Um, Do you think that this film in any way was a response to Grapes of Wrath?
0: Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad that you thought I had the same thought. Oh, you know, Paul, even though we're doing this this, this podcast over headphones in different houses, synchronicity man yes because 100
3: episodes in we're finally merging <laughs> of the minds
0: <laughs> oh you don't want that you don't want that you don't want to be in this brain uh no yeah grapes of wrath had just won all the oscars it had just come out in 1940 Ford had john ford had just won best director so yeah it is that comment on like okay now i want to be the john ford a thousand percent i mean it's like if somebody if, if you've made a comedy this year that was about Michael Bay saying, I want to make a movie set in Korea about class inequality.
3: Well, by the way, I did uh, a piece with Michael Bay and he loved doing Pain and Gain because he was like, I need to get back to my roots and do independent film. You know, I need to do this movie and tell a smaller story. And I think to him, a smaller movie was about like $80 million. But um, but again, you see, I remember talking to him about that. He loved going back to basics, even though. Again, like I said, Michael Bay's basics are different. This idea of I want to be taken seriously. When you see everyone getting around something, a lot of the times in Hollywood, you're often seeing multiple people take a shot at trying to do the same thing. You know, um, It happens all the time when mumblecore takes off. Then everyone's making a mumblecore movie. Or you look at a movie like Pulp Fiction where everyone did their version of Quentin Tarantino. But at the end of the day, it's not that the story... Is unique. It's the person telling the story, right? So it's very hard to kind of duplicate what Quentin Tarantino does. You know, Two Days in the Valley, a fine movie, but it's not Pulp Fiction. You know, and it's and I feel like, uh, but there's this vibe, and I think this is a very Hollywood thing of let me create my own thing. Larry David's doing a show just about him. I want to do my show just about me. And then you have so many clones of Curb, but so few are actually great and i think the only one that really stands out to me is like donald glover saying like oh i'm gonna take this and do it my way you know and it's and he's not even doing it as himself but i think this idea of like everyone's like i want to do the show that stars me and it's about me and who i interact with we're we're so obsessed about like creating what we think is popular i think a lot of the times
0: no you're right and how wild is it the president Service is calling this out in, in 1941. you It know, never I'm, goes away. It never goes away. And we're having that conversation so much right now, I think, in culture about who has the right to tell this story. You know, do you have the right to tell this story if it is not your story? And I I don't have a hard and fast rule on that, honestly. But I feel like that question of who can tell the story correctly is so right up front in Sullivan's Travels. And it makes this conversation that to me feels very 2020 feel like part of this extended conversation. And I I appreciate that, seeing it in this context. I mean, there's a moment so early on in the film where, you know, and I I think it's important that it's early because this isn't a movie where um, the director realizes late in the game, like, oh, I've had this revelation. I shouldn't be the one telling this story. I am too privileged to tell this story of poor people. I am too rich to tell this story, which is the thing that I think Preston Surgis also wrestled with himself. I mean, Preston Surgis grew up pretty rich. His mother had a lot of rich art friends. He knew a lot of fancy people when he was a kid. He's a guy who, like, invented a kiss-proof lipstick when he was a little kid. I mean, this is a man who was always in Europe. He had a life that nobody can relate to. He wanted to sell clam juice as a drink and call it Pepto-Clam. Like, he's just, I mean, he's like an Elon Musk of random inventions. He's a random, random weird rich kid who then is like, calling out random rich kids like himself for thinking they can make movies about poor people. And so, like, nine minutes into the film, you have his butler call him on it. And, and he doesn't learn the lesson later. He gets called on it right at the beginning. I love this the scene that he has with his butler. Good morning,
7: sir. Good morning, Burroughs. How do you like it? I don't like it at all, sir. Fancy dress, I take it. What's the matter with it? I have never been sympathetic to the caricaturing of the poor and needy, sir. Well, who's caricaturing? But well, it doesn't know about the expedition, sir. I'm going out on the road to find out what it's like to be poor and needy, and then I'm going to make a picture If you'll it. permit me to say so, sir, the subject is not an interesting one. The poor know all about poverty, and only the morbid rich would find the topic glamorous. But I'm doing it for the poor. Don't you understand? I doubt if they would appreciate it, sir. They rather resent the invasion of their privacy, I believe quite properly, sir. Also, such excursions can be extremely dangerous, sir. I worked for a gentleman once, who likewise, with two friends, accouted themselves, as you have, sir, and then went out for a lark. They have not been heard from since. That was some time ago.
5: 1912,
7: sir. Uh Uh-huh. You see, sir, rich people and theorists, who are usually rich people, think of poverty in the negative, as the lack of riches, as disease might be called the lack of health. But it isn't, sir. Poverty is not the lack of anything, but a positive plague, virulent in itself, contagious as cholera, with filth, criminality, vice, and despair as only a few of its symptoms. It is to be stayed away from, even for purposes of study. It is to be shunned. Well, you seem to have made quite a study of it. Quite unwillingly, sir. Will that be all, sir?
0: That quite unwillingly, sir, just kills me. And, And it suddenly takes everything you even just saw in the last couple minutes right before that. You know, Sullivan with a bindle on his shoulder, doing a big old phony limp. It it makes a mockery of him right at the beginning for putting on this costume.
3: Yes, this is a movie that knows or wants you to know from moment one that we are not on the side of our lead character. And I think that that's a rare thing to do in a comedy. Oftentimes in a comedy, you see yourself as the lead character, right? There's something about it that you can gravitate towards um, you know, in some, in some regard, there's an everyman quality,
0: right? You are the 40 year old version. Well, you know, I think,
3: yes, of course. <laughs> uh, but no, I think there is like, there's a, there's a likability or there's a shared like, Oh, I've been in those moments. I feel for this character, but you know, for the moment one, the title card even says, no, 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 this is a movie dedicated to people that make you laugh. Like the, the clowns, the buffoons, the, uh, the mounty backs.
0: What is a Mountieback? Uh, what is a Motley Mountieback?
3: I, I don't know. I kind of thought it was like maybe Motty a Bank. Canadian Mountie. Mountie Bank? Uh, no, but I just love that, you know, from moment one, it's telling you this is a movie that is celebrating people who make you laugh. And and because of that, we're looking at this character and waiting for him to really come to his senses that what he is actually doing is a good thing. And maybe that's Preston Sturgis saying to himself, no, you know what? Take the pressure off. I'm actually making good things.
0: I mean, I'll be honest, it's hard for me to look at Sullivan and think he ever made comedies, right? I mean, this is not a guy with a sense of humor.
3: Well, I think, but yeah, you know, it's sort of that thing where you hear like, oh, they're one of the funniest people I've ever seen. And then you talk to them and they're so deathly serious, you know, like, I I feel like that's a, (laughs) that's an idea that's out there. You know, it, it feels to me like it's just what we talked about a little bit earlier, like this idea of like I wish I could be doing this cuz I want that respect. I feel like he he wants respect. I don't think that he doesn't like what he does. He just wants a different level of respect. You know, the studio loves him. They're telling him you're amazing, you're great. We'll let you do whatever you want. We'll we'll, you know, we'll have a camera crew cover this. We'll record this like he is he is the top dog, but he's not feeling that love and it's you know, he's not seeing that light shined on him. He's not understanding like what he's actually doing. All he's seeing is how he's not doing you know, what other people are doing that is deemed as important.
0: Um, Engineer Devin, one of the brightest people in the world, has let us know that Mountbank is defined as a person who deceives others, especially in order to trick them out of their money, colon, is charlatan. So he's uh, dedicating it to thieves. He's dedicating it to criminals. He's dedicating it to the family and parasite.
3: De- uh, dedicating it to the snake oil salesmen uh, out there. You know, I, you know um, Hollywood's full of them. <laughs> I mean, we talked about this, I believe, maybe in another episode where we were saying, like, if you were trapped on a deserted island, what movie would you want to bring? And some people like, I'd bring the longest movie. I'd bring this. I'd bring that. And I was saying, like, I would want to bring a comedy because that's the movie that I would want to rewatch again and again. I don't want to watch Schindler's List again and again. I, But <sighs> believe in it. I think it's a beautifully done movie. But there is something about, you know, those films. I mean, how often do you go back and watch a very dramatic film? Do you do you revisit dramatic films that much? I I, I know I don't really do that. Action movies, yes. Comedies, yes. But like a really intense drama. I mean, it's, it's not like, oh, got to pop in that one tonight. Got to pop in Sophie's Choice.
0: I Cut knew you up. were going to say Sophie's Choice. Mm-hmm. In my head, I was like, Paul's going to say Sophie's Choice right now. And then uh- you did it. See, hundred episodes, hundred episodes, I love it. baby. We're there. This is what happens. No, I mean, the movies that make me cry, I I don't watch them. I I have them saved. You know, the movies that I love yeah. the absolute most that make me lose my mind every single time, I will go four, five, six, seven years between watching because I don't want them to lose their power. Yeah. Whereas I feel like a good comedy, we can just hang. Me and a good comedy, we're we're down. But if a movie makes me cry, that is such a rare thing. And I am not a crier. I was (laughs) talking about this actually with another one of my friends this week over text that um, we don't cry except during movies. And so it makes the movies that we cry at very special.
3: Well, I'll tell you, Amy, as a parent now, I cry all the time. I can uh, from like, I know it's cliche to say, but uh, give me a good uh, TV commercial and I will I will be uh, a puddle. I am a puddle now. I enjoy crying now. Uh, but it's
0: gotta be nice. I'm a little jealous.
3: I don't enjoy watching movies that make me cry. It's not like I don't go chasing that. Like I, I think I, I am more easy to cry, but I don't want to chase that feeling. Um, you know, and I was thinking about this movie and what I really think is so ingenious about it is it doesn't have the typical comedy structure. Like our character learns his lesson at the midpoint of the second act. He learns, okay, you know what? I fucked up. This is a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to try to make it right. I'm going to go give money out to people. And, you know, it's again, a little misguided, but it's also uh, his heart's in the right place. He is now with this woman that he, as Hollywood always shows us, you meet a woman, you have a couple conversations with them and you're now in love. I mean, although I buy their love a lot more, the train, the train car scene is, is really beautiful. But then the movie takes this really big twist and, he gets caught in the situation that he's been dying to be in. And that's such an interesting way to take it from the midpoint of the second act all the way to the finale. And I was, you know, the first time I saw that, I was kind of surprised by that because a traditional movie, I think you would, you would maybe have him learn his lesson at the end. And I think the fact that he's like kind of learned his lesson in the middle and then they like really jam it in. And then he really feels what it's like to be there is... I think it brings home the point uh, a lot more. It actually makes it a little bit more dramatic. You feel his desperation. The movie—it's—it's it's such a sign of good writing. Like it becomes a lot more dire. It's—it's it's not a comedy anymore. It—it it is like how how is he going to get out of this? It's like he got into Cool Hand Luke all of a sudden, and you know how is how does he escape? I, I, I love that that twist.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. I mean, this movie—it's almost three genres, right? Yeah, is this fast paced comedy? And then it's this realistic melodrama. I mean, melodrama's not even fair. It's just a realistic drama about what the prison system is like. You know, notes of um, I escape from a chain gang, or, or I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. I don't know if people have seen that one, but it's in that. It's very much in that same, that same tenor. I was gonna and,
3: say Gator, my favorite. Yes, uh, it's exactly like Gator. Gator.
0: It's very much like Gator. Uh, and then in the middle, I think it's got this bridge section where Preston Sur just makes a silent film. You know, it's. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's got a seven. Everything that Sullivan actually learns on the road, everything he sees during his real learning experience as he considers it. We're actually not part of it at all. Like we're not part of most of his conversations of here's what the average man is like. Here's what poverty is like. I'm having this conversation about poverty. He keeps trying to start a conversation about what poverty is with people. They're not interested. I mean, we see that at least here when he and um, when he and Veronica like hop a train for the first time.
5: Oh, how do you do? Beautiful weather.
4: It doesn't rain.
5: How do you feel about the labor situation? Oh, where are you going?
0: I love it and I love how that scene it kind of shows that there are varying levels of expertise in the world and it gives respect to the people who are really good at catching trains the people who are great at hopping on trains look at Sullivan and they just call him an amateur and I, I love their condescension there
3: would I be wrong in saying and uh, excuse me for using this term but is you know is Joe McRae's character is he a libtard <laughs>
0: I've never heard that word spoken aloud. I've just seen it typed by idiots. Wow. Congrats for being the first oral usage of "lift Hard, perhaps in the world. Uh, Is that even used in conversation?
3: I'm sure on a lot of uh, conservative radio. Uh, But uh, no, but I mean, is is this like, is he doing all those things that, you know, you see people on the internet rail against, you know, uh, an SJW or, you know, he is, you know, trying to, to ingratiate himself in this world, and that that scene, I wrote that that line down. You know, what do you think of the labor situation? Because it's sort of like he his heart is in the right place, but he's doing the wrong thing, right? And I think that's something that is also an incredibly relatable idea. You know, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that people just don't know how to jump in and how to do it effectively. Uh, but I think that 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 is something that I really love too. That this is always been an idea. Like we're going through the depression. What is it like to be out there? I want to know. I want to help. And even the fact when he does go to help, he's like not necessarily doing it incredibly the right way. He thinks he's doing it the right way. Like everything about it, like is a little bit of this character trying to do what he thinks is the best, but doesn't have any clue. And I don't think he, you know, he doesn't understand his privilege. He doesn't understand you know, his biases or his, you know, what he like, what he's grown up in until he literally is without it. And, you know, and I think he thinks he could be smarter than it. And until it like envelops him, it takes him, it takes a while to get to that place and to truly understand and respect this other world, you know, which is not meant to be looked at like a zoo. It's, 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 and that's what I think he's doing for the most part of the beginning of the film.
0: No, you're right. I mean, if anything, his journey is about Not trying to, you know, catch up to what poverty is, but trying to outrace his own privilege, which he really can't do. You know, it's that's that's the impossible mission. And so it is so beautiful that we don't have kind of him sitting down for a world changing conversation in that earlier section when he's on the quest that he thinks he's supposed to be on. Where somebody at a diner is like, oh, I will tell you what I think about the labor situation. Like we never have that. I mean, I was thinking so much of Sunrise and the way they're using, you know, trombones to be like, I'm a sexy lady over here. I mean, listen to the way that they have this very beautiful, I think, sad, emotional score that kicks up into a different level to simulate, say, hearing a person who's basically like the Bernie Sanders of 1941 giving a speech. And and as we're listening to this, you know, picture that Preston Sturgis isn't just showing like, here's a guy giving a speech. He's panning back to the people in the audience showing that, they're not into it. That they're bored and they're just only here because they need a place to sit down.
3: You know, you playing that clip, and it actually reminds me of African Queen. This idea of religion taking advantage of a captive audience, right? Like there is this moment where they're corralling them in to basically convert them, right, to a certain degree. Like we can, if we give them showers, we can let them hear our our ideas, and we can maybe have them be a part of us and what I love is later on in the film, when he goes to that church and sees the movie, when he's truly beaten down, like those characters actually are. Because at that point, he's not beaten down. He's like living through the idea of what it's like to be beaten down. But when he's truly beaten down, and he goes in and just has this moment to see a movie and the magic of the movie is and the magic of just laughing. There's no point. There's no There's no message. It's just to take your mind off of this existence that you're in which again going back to what we're all living in right now we want we want to watch our macgrubers we want to watch our what we do in shadows you know we want to just laugh um he is totally engaged in the art that he actually makes i just love that distinction between that scene of like i'm here because i need to be warm and they're kind of taking advantage of me versus like i'm in a place and they're actually taking event they're actually taking care of me by giving me something like just giving me laughter. And I, and I know not to get too dark, but I know in my conversations with my friends and, and in my zooms and all this sort of stuff, when you can really laugh in this time and not that we've been in this time for so long, but when we haven't really seen our friends, like those laughs mean so much more. Like I feel like I've laughed so much harder in the last, you know, 14 days that I've been kind of confined to my house, uh, because it's, you need it. You need a little bit of a release.
0: I love that. I love that because I love that you're that you're talking about how this movie ties religion and and entertainment almost like they're the same thing. Like going to a theater. Oh, and I can't wait to go to a theater again is a church. I know a lot of of critics and people who love movies call going to the movies, going to church and tend to to have that climactic scene where you watch him and and plot set up. If you haven't seen it, you know what? What Paul's been talking about is in the second half of the film, the, the last third, really. He's arrested for hitting a man over the head with a rock and battering him pretty bad. And he's sentenced to six years in jail because of it, which he beat a man really badly with a rock. That happened. He was disoriented. He had a concussion and he's on this chain gang. And then he's brought to a movie theater that's in a church and not even just in a church. It's in specifically a Southern black church, you know, where the priest is telling his people, you know, an all black congregation, be nice to these white inmates, even though they're lower than you, even though they're in a worse opposition to you. Show them love and respect and brotherhood, which is incredibly moving. And that that is a scene you don't see in most other 40s films, you know, a scene that is talking about race a bit obliquely, but it's right there. It's right there. And then. and
3: it, Yeah. And I'll also say, but it's also about this this issue that our main character has, which is what i think people need which i think this movie is showing like religion and what people actually need which is a release of you know entertainment they need entertainment and, and i think that's what he's wrestling with the entire time like i think people need to see what it's like to be downtrodden i i you know like it's it's the prescriptive of and and the other one is like that church they're actually taking care of them the church in which they show the movie is doing a greater service than the church in which they are preaching at them, right? Because like one is taking care and one is saying, you'll be better if you have religion in your life and whether or not you have religion in your life that I'm not making a statement on that, but it's sort of this idea of like, no, the thing is is like take care of the person mentally. Like just don't give them another thing. And I I don't know. I think that there's something really interesting about that dichotomy, like what people think you need versus what you actually need.
0: No, I think you're exactly right. And if there's one thing we know about Sullivan, it's that he hasn't been to a movie theater. He's completely disconnected from it. You know, he opens the film in a screening room watching this, like, what, Fast and Furious of Capitalism movie where it's like, what, labor is fighting, you know, commerce or whatever it is. Who's I don't remember who's fighting each other. It's like labor right. and, uh, yeah, but they're killing each other and both will die in a in a bridge plunge of all things. But it's really him in a studio screening room, which, you know... Most people don't get to go to because they're very, they're very strange little theatrical things and you can get really isolated. I think about that as a lot as a critic. You know, we see a lot of movies in studio screening rooms and you can lose track of what a real theater is like. And then fairly early on in his whole adventure, he goes to an actual movie theater, a normal one in normal-ish circumstances with that lovely old lady who's trying to hit on him and is fighting oh, so yeah. much with her sister about it. I love them so, 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 so much. This woman who's like, you know, fighting with her sister and her sister's like, I would never got into any sort of moral sin or trouble. And the the um, sexy sister's like, nobody ever asked you to. Which yes. is kind of, I guess, the same joke that he pulls later on on um, Veronica Lake that we just heard. But they go to a movie theater and you can tell that he did not know what movie theaters are really like. He's like, this is noisy, nobody's paying attention, it's so distracting, and he actually hates the experience of being in a normal movie theater. Let's listen to that. What he pictured his grand masterpiece would be going into. He doesn't even understand what movie theaters are like. And When you look at that marquee of the movies that they're seeing in this triple bill, it's beyond these tears. The Valley of the Shadow, The Buzzard of Berlin. Who the hell wants to go to that triple feature? Well, okay, maybe. Uh, what do you think The Buzzard of Berlin is even about?
3: I feel like it's about like some sort of dive bomber in uh, it, during like World War II or something like some sort of pilot.
0: Yeah, World War II is just starting. Like, I mean, the critics who saw Sullivan's Travels, they went to a screening of this on a studio lot and then Pearl Harbor happens. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're about to enter World War II.
3: I mean, that's why I've always said that like Robert De Niro, like he took Sybil Shepard to a movie to take her mind off of what was going on in Taxi Driver. Just enjoy a fun, romantic romp, you know, and she just couldn't handle it.
0: Oh, my God. How many scenes are there on the AFI list of somebody taking somebody to a movie and it sucks? Because if those are two and they're both bad, is the AFI list like don't take people to movies?
3: I don't know. I think the AFI list likes the nod at, you know, at the studio system. And again, I'm, if I'm going to take a dig at this movie, and, it's, and I really don't have a dig. I, I think I like Preston Sturges so much that I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is the best film to be on the list. It's definitely uh, the most Hollywood But I feel like there are other films. We talked about, you know, the Lady Eve. We talked about Palm Beach Story, Miracle in Morgan's Creek, Hail the Conquering Hero. In many respects, Hail the Conquering Hero should be the movie that is on this list. It's kind of the movie that is done over and over again, Uh, in the sense that you know it's about a a war hero who is not actually a war hero who pretends that he is a war hero. Uh, It's it's a really funny movie. But I the only my only dig on it is, is like I think sometimes this list is obsessed with Hollywood. It is obsessed with what the studio system is it's the way the academy awards talks about things it's like oh if you make a movie about hollywood it will applaud itself because they like they like navel gazing which is kind of a funny idea because this movie is saying (laughs) make movies for the masses and this movie is is I, i i have a hard time going is it for the masses is it not because as a creative person who is in this business i recognize all the things does everybody else recognize all that stuff? I imagine people who vote on the AFI list, they all see themselves in this as well. But is this the movie that actually is the best, most accessible Preston Sturgis film? I don't know. Because I haven't watched them all recently. But I think The Lady Eve and The Palm Beach Story and Miracle at Morgan's Creek, they are a little bit more accessible is all I'll say. And then, And again, I'm not trying to kick this movie off the list. I'm just saying that I... I do feel like there's a lo- there's a lot of Hollywood in this movie. It's it's very much, you know, it's it it's probably the most inside baseball movie that we have on this list. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean that, and also singing in the rain, which I think really makes oh, yes. the same point. You know that that I mean, it's singing in the rain. I was thinking about it because there's a whole musical number in singing in the rain that ha- preaches the same point that we have Sullivan here preaching. You know make people happy, make people laugh. There is a song about it. We heard it. Here it
7: is.
4: But are we? No. Definitely no. Positively no. Decidedly no. Uh Uh-uh. Short people have long faces. And
7: long people have short faces. Big people have a little humor, and little people have no humor at all.
4: (laughs) And in the words of that immortal bard, Samuel J. Snodgrass, as he was about to be led to the guillotine, Make them laugh, make them laugh Don't you know everyone wants to laugh ah, ah. My dad said be an actor, my son But be a comical one, they'll be standing in lines For those old honky-tonk monkey shines how you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. I mean,
0: so what is that that Hollywood is like? Let's put these films on the AFI list that are saying Hollywood needs to make more comedies. And then the AFI list is also like, but we're not really going to put most of those on this list, though. Where are our Vietnam films?
3: Right. We want to make the movies that make you think and make you feel like you've been there. And, and and we kind of talked about this idea that like even the Vietnam films besides Platoon are from people who didn't go to Vietnam. But they're like, I yeah. want to make this movie. This is this is this is Coppola going. I want to do this or, you know, the same way with, you know, I think Francis Ford Coppola is so engaged in the in the, in the mafia. But it's not it's not from his perspective. Oh, Mara my Pusa God. Was, Francis you know, Ford
0: Coppola is fucking Sullivan, man. Yes. But he's like dumb Sullivan.
3: <laughs> but I mean, but sorry. think like, but no, but I mean, think about these directors who went from, okay, perfect example, Todd Phillips, right? Todd Phillips goes from like old school to the Joker, right? It's like, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but there's this idea I of am. like, I want to oh, make, <laughs> you know, I want to make something that has a little bit more relevance or, or, or you know, uh, resonance. I think that you could, you could even see Then I think a lot of comedy directors have taken these moments, taken something, and done, you know, let me show them what I can do dramatically. Because once you get, once you can show people that you're dramatic, doors open. You get to sit with the pretty people, essentially. Like you go from, you know, it's like you go from the the back of the crowd to the front table, you know. And, And I think just think about it in your head. There's so many people you can say that they used to do comedy, they don't do comedy anymore you know, and it's like, well, why did you stop doing the thing that we love you for doing? And, you know, uh, I think Bill Murray's gone in and out of that. And, you know, and I think he's kind of, kind of now found a sweet spot. You know, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. We hate the light and the fluffy, or maybe the thought, the thought is like not everyone can agree on comedy because not everyone has a sense of humor, but everyone can be like, that's dramatic. And I always feel that way. It's like, when you hear about these Sundance movies or these, uh, these movies that sell at festivals, it's like, very rarely do you hear about a great comedy You're just like, oh that was really deep oh, i never saw anything like that you know it's like it's just people i think it's easier to it's easier to you know laud a dramatic film than it is to laud a lot of comedy because it's you know what you think is funny what i think is funny is very different
0: i agree on that i mean i definitely feel as a critic when the serious movie comes out and everybody at sundance is like oh this is really the important one of the year and it also kind of sucks. I I that's those are crazy making moments to me. I had one this year at the year Sundance. I don't want to name the film because it hasn't come out yet and it's very well meaning. But everybody was like, this is the most important film of the year. Oh my god, it's so deep. And I was like, this film is bullshit. And I just want to complain about this movie forever to all of my friends. And I will probably complain about it eventually, but I I don't want
3: to yet. But there but there's a difference between and and um and I'm kind of doing apples and oranges here, but there's a difference between like the movies that you would see. I, I don't feel 100% confident in what I'm saying, but I, you'll get what I'm. I think if you're listening, you'll get what I'm going with. There's a difference between what like a studio like Miramax was putting out, like what they thought these are important independent movies, versus what A24 is putting out, which is like these are interesting creative voices, right? And it's like, and I think sometimes we can get caught up in like this looks important, it feels important, it must be important, versus this is interesting, this is a new voice, this is something we've never seen before. And, you know, for every, I'd rather a lighthouse and thank you, uh, sorry to bother you, uh, you know, over something that just feels. The reader. Yeah. Something like,
0: I'm a person in World War II and there's a Nazi. Yeah.
3: Like, I don't hear many people outside of the business talking about Sullivan's travels. But Billy Wilder is making movies that are more accessible. Oh, here's a guy who works in a. You know, in an office, and his boss takes his key to have sex in his house, or
0: this is a Preston Sturgis movie where he's making fun of himself and all of his friends. And other Preston Sturgis movies make fun of the military, or san- religious sanctimony, or politics. They make fun of bigger targets. Yeah, that more that affect more people's lives, right?
3: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
0: And and I think there is absolute beauty in here. It, I the scene in the church where you have, you know. The pastor leading people through singing let my people go this beautiful religious theme and hearing in the background you know the clink clank clank of 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 the prisoners walking in in chains i mean it's let, let's listen to that because it's so beautiful
8: then israel to be my
0: things about this whole sequence like you know the u.s office of censorship would not let this movie would not let sullivan's travels be seen overseas because it came out right when we entered world war ii and they thought this movie could be used as propaganda purposes by other countries because it implied that the american system of justice was not fair and that the american people were still living in poverty and that there was a lot of inequality in the world so because of that they would not let this film be exported abroad But then you also have people like Walter White, the secretary of the NAACP, a person that has come up on the show before. We talked about him and his conflicts with Hattie McDaniel when they shot Gone with the Wind with her great grandnephew. Um, He wrote to Sturgis a thank you letter for the scene in the church. And he said that was really moving to him and that he really appreciated that. He said that it helped show that um, actors of color should not just be limited to menial or comic roles, and it meant a lot to him to see this sequence. It, he called it a step in the in the right direction, and to have this scene be so polarizing—I think in in the government being against it, in in people in America saying this is the direction we want films to go in—that's so beautiful. And to be, I'm sorry, I know a lot of people are watching a lot of Disney Plus right now. I do love that he didn't even want to use a Disney cartoon for the emotional scene that comes next when everybody's laughing at a comedy together. He wanted to use a chaplain, which I think you see so much of that, of his chaplain silent film influence in there. Even the way Veronica Lake is dressed in this movie, he has her dressed like the tramp in these giant pants and this giant coat. And some of that is because it's funny. And some of that is because uh, Veronica Lake is six months pregnant in this film and didn't tell him until after she was cast. And he was very, very mad about it.
3: I mean, well, only the costume designer, Edith Head, and his uh, Preston Sturges' wife uh, knew about it, which I love that they kept it from him.
0: Yeah. And you can't tell. The costume no. is so good. You know, this giant coats. I, and I I love that he's nodding so much to Chaplin. I also part of like the mean part of me was like, I think it's funny that the Disney clip that they wound up having to pick because Chaplin said no. Um it's not even like Mickey being funny. Cause I just think Mickey's lame. I don't think Mickey's ever funny. Like goofy is funny. So it's a goofy clip.
3: Well, I always say, I always say about Mickey. It's as by the way, as, as someone who loves Disney, like, like describe Mickey mouse to me. Like, what is one thing that's funny or interesting about Mickey mouse? I, I don't know what, like what's his personality. I don't know. It's as, it's as hard as describing what Qui-Gon Jinn is in Phantom Men. It's like, like, wh- what is that character? He's a Jedi. What does he do? I don't know. He's just like, I yeah. mean, it's like, you know, it's like there's a nothing character there. I mean, and yeah, the, yeah. Anyway, I could talk about Mickey mm-hmm. and the lack of personality.
0: He's like, he's like, this is probably not fair because I have not seen enough of him to say so, but he's kind of like Johnny Carson. He's like, and here's my more interesting friend. Hello.
3: And he brings <laughs> them on. Yeah. He, uh, the yeah, there's an element to him that is uh, just like, Yeah, he's not even, like, goody-two-shoes. He's just sort of, like, a happy-go... I mean, he's not even happy-go-lucky. He's just... I don't know. He's a ringleader. Mickey's a ringleader. Life is a highway, and on
1: it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: hey everyone this is gil ozeri you may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit or you may know me from comedy bang bang i play dr sweet chat and ned bellinella the busiest man or irving Sardinus. uh anyway i just wanted to say how much i'm gonna miss scott now that he's dead what what do you mean he's not dead well whose funeral was that What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy fifth. Fifteenth anniversary! Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome, and extra wet. So here's to another fifteen years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Bruba, they should go do it. Yes, they should, Bruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yes, Bruba, go do. do. That's right, Bruba, Bruba, go do.
3: I mean, now did people like this movie when it comes out? Because like, I imagine, like, we're talking about this now and, and wondering, like, did people like it? How was it received when it came out? It
0: was received with kind of that soft praise. I think we give a lot of Cohen movies when they first come out. You know that, like, it's good, it's okay. I think they could do better. Um, but somebody went really hard on it, and that was The New Yorker's Russell Maloney. And I have a theory about it, which I'll kind of use to set up as I go into the review, which is that he had to review this movie in January 1942, and that is an America that is suddenly at war, and everything looks different. It's like trying to review a comedy this week. Like, How do you review a comedy while we're all locked inside? Where do right. you go with that? Like, I remember trying to write, movie reviews the week after Trump got elected. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. Everything suddenly became a different movie. Stuff I had seen a month before and then rewatched that week. Different movie. Absolutely different movie. And so I think Russell Maloney was in a mood because he reviewed three movies in The New Yorker that week. He hated all of them. And he prefaced his reviews of all of them by saying this. However well geared to the war effort the rest of us must be. The movie industry, judged on the basis of this week's offerings, appears to be suffering from hysteria, indecision, and poor judgment on the part of the high command and a lack of vitamin B1. The sad thing is all of these pictures so frequent gleams of intelligent invention, they'd be good or pretty good if the moths hadn't got into them. The moths hadn't got into them. He's saying they're immediately dated because of where we are on this planet, because we just went to war. So here's what he specifically says about Sullivan's travels. He says, anybody can make a mistake. Preston Sturgis, even. The mistake in question is a pretentious number called Sullivan's Travels, all about a motion picture director who yearns to make sociological films and concludes that with the world in its present state, he ought to make comedies instead. That's my conclusion, too. I mean, I concluded that Sturgis ought to make comedies. He goes on to call the movie fairly graphic, highly depressing, and he says that he needn't think he can win me over with sequences in which people get pushed into a swimming pool. I can push people into swimming pools and surely there's enough of that in real life without seeing it in, in the movies. Matter of fact, I am now whipping up a scenario under the title of No Time for No Time for Comedy about a movie critic who does not like watered down S.N. Behrman. If that joke makes no sense to you, it actually, that made no sense to me. I had to look it up. Apparently there was a movie called No Time for Comedy that just came out by a person named S.N. Behrman. That was about, uh, that was a, it's a Jimmy Stewart, Rosalind Russell movie that I've never heard of. So I've. Glad to hear about it now. And it's about a Broadway writer who writes big comedies but decides to write a tragedy instead. So I think that he was saying that this movie felt kind of redundant and like it was copycatting already at the time. Although, because I'd never heard of that movie, I had no idea that there was already this drama going on.
3: Well, you know, I, I also read a review that I thought was really interesting too that took a shot at him by saying, you know, Preston Sturges have made these movies. There were joy to behold. But what he failed to heed is his own message, which is laughter is what people want, not social studies. And I and I really took this one, I took like a, a side offense at this one, because I think what he's able to do, and this is something we haven't really talked about, he makes a point about not doing this thing in a way that doesn't feel preachy, that is still incredibly funny, uh, but it, I think it really is a story that that done differently uh, could have felt like a muddled mess. I think this movie is incredibly funny. I think it does have tonal shifts and it's not like just a screwball comedy. And I think the screwball comedy of this is not actually that interesting. And I think, uh, but he doesn't make this social studies. Like I think he's able to give gravity and respect to what is going on in our country without making grapes of wrath. And that is a a line to walk. That is so impressive. I mean, like when I read that review, it kind of highlighted to me, what I love about this movie is that he was able to do all of this and not make a straight up drama, like how that he was able to put that much comedy into this and still carry a big message.
0: No, I agree. I think he a thousand percent nails the tonal shifts, a, a, a thousand gazillion bazillion Said. I mean, he said at the time that he felt like he was making Sullivan's travels not to warn himself what not to do, but to warn his friends who he thought were fucking up. It's like if Judd Apatow made a movie saying, yo, Todd Phillips, I think you're on the wrong track here. You know, be right. like, don't do this. You don't need to do this. You don't need to go there.
3: I watch this movie called The Art of Self-Defense, which I really loved. Uh, I love Stern's that movie. movie. You uh, saw that? I love that. Yeah, I saw you've it. You've been and, uh, doing a
0: whole quarantine movie marathon. I have been loving I've, watching what you've been watching.
3: I've been enjoying watching these movies. And and I thought that that movie was so funny. It was so interesting. I thought it actually really tackled like toxic masculinity in a way that was so funny and not labored. And that's my issue that I had with Joker is like, Oh, how can we tell the story and, and still make it um, incredibly fun and entertaining to a certain degree? Like, you know, how can you do that? And, uh, and I think that that movie does an amazing job at walking that line. It's funny. It's interesting. It's a thriller. It's, you know, it's it's hard to talk about these subjects without getting like, like uh, too morose. I think.
0: No, you're exactly right. I love, I love, I love the art of self-defense. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. And and you know, I think like, I wonder if, despite the good intentions of this movie, what really caught my attention is that. Even at the end, Sullivan hasn't lost his privilege at all. Like he straight up beats a man almost to death with a rock. We see blood on his fingers. And because he's a movie director, he gets let out of prison. Like, what is that? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, he's like, but I'm a movie director. I am special. And here, I mean, I want to play this clip of him talking to my absolute, you know, Beloved, shout out forever, Jimmy Conlon in the prison where he's like, I should be able to not, I shouldn't have to be in this prison. I'm a movie director, though, and the guy's like, Well, no, you did a crime, you can be in this prison. And he's like, Nah, no, 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 I'm a movie director. Movie directors don't go to jail. I'm sorry. It kind of it did make me mad in a time where like every beloved basketball player that I have is getting like a coronavirus test and nobody else's. I was like, Oh, come the fuck on. But you're
3: also probably reacting to the fact that 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 never really happens in real life. I mean, like you know, like Robert Blake went to jail. O.J. Simpson went to jail, you know, all uh-huh. these, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, no, you're right, yeah, let's play that clip,
6: don't you understand, they think I'm dead, but I'm not dead, well, that's fine, just think what a nice surprise they'll have when you get out, I haven't time to spend six years, but you were sentenced,
5: I know that, but I still haven't time,
6: well, you'll have to find the time,
5: look, they don't sentence picture directors to a place like this for a little disagreement with a yard bull. Don't they? No.
6: Oh. Well, maybe you ain't a picture director. Huh? Maybe that idea just come to you when you got hit on the head. Maybe.
8: Now, look.
6: Uh, We used to have a fellow here once that thought he was Lindbergh. He used to fly away every night. But he was always back in the morning.
5: Well, don't I look like a picture director?
6: Of course, I've never seen one. To me, you look kind of more like a, a soda jerk. Or
5: maybe a plaster, or maybe. But if ever a plot needed a twist, this one does. Huh? I got to get my picture in the paper.
0: A soda jerk. I love that. What a great way of just saying he looks like a jerk.
3: <laughs> well, Amy, I we've talked about this so much, and I, I really enjoy talking about, and I kind of find it hard sometimes to talk about comedies, because on the surface, this movie is a very simple idea, right? A, like, we shouldn't be you know we should be worried about a doing the things that we're good at and and making the things that people want to see versus the things that we think people want and i think you could take that into any part of your life whether you're creative or not but i guess the question i want to ask you before we get into the simpsons of it all is like do you believe that this movie belongs on the list
0: i mean i love this movie so deeply I had forgotten how many times I'd seen this movie until I watched it for for our show. I forgot that every time a character showed up on screen, I actually knew exactly what they were going to say. This is, a, I think, a movie I have memorized, and I didn't remember that I had it memorized. Do, I don't, do you know what I mean?
3: Absolutely. No, I, uh, I feel the same way. I've probably seen this film more than any other Sturgis film, and I've seen them all, but this is the one that I've probably revisited the most because I think it is the most... Uh, lauded and you know you have from peter bogdanovich and bill Hader, you you know michael mckeon all you know i think every big celebrity when they talk about preston sturgis they talk about this movie because i think it's very relatable to people in this profession but just for the sake of argument you know because i agree with you this movie is great does it belong on this list over the other one
0: I mean it's tough. Like I feel like you could take the screenplay for Miracle at Morgan's Creek and just shoot it again word for yes. word and it would be exactly right. You know, I don't think he wrote a false word in any of those things that feels dated because his stuff was it wasn't of the 40s even when it was in the 40s.
3: I totally and agree. And
0: so I think he's so vital. I would love that. Like that's almost like my Miracle at Morgan's Creek challenge. I want to see somebody do a sequel of that or a reboot. Can you yeah, reboot. Can we reboot it? Do I want it? Oh, then everybody would be like, oh, how dare you reboot it? But
3: Didn't they remake um, Unfaithfully Yours? Uh, that was the movie that Preston Sturge made with, like, I believe, Dudley Moore. Was that right, Devin? Is I that think Dudley Moore? Because you're shaking your head.
0: They did. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen the remake, but I love the original
3: Unfaithfully Yours. Maybe it was Griffin Dunn. I don't know. Um, but yeah, like... Yeah, it's uh, Dudley Moore and Natasha Kinski. Whoa. Oh, interesting. Dudley yeah, Moore and Natasha
2: see, Kinski. You
3: know, like... Like it's interesting why you know this movie I feel like has been done on a certain level, and I think you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, feels like the film that this director wanted to make, or or maybe maybe the film that he would have made afterwards. Uh, but um, yeah, I, like I'm I'm surprised that this movie isn't hasn't been remade. It's surprising to me. Well, we're just starting
0: uh, our new Great Depression. Yes, Give it maybe twelve uh, this years. Is
3: this, is a, this is a chance uh, for us. Oh to God!
0: Get back to the oh, I'm sorry. I hate that I just said that out loud. <laughs>
3: No, but I mean, I'm not trying to kick this movie off the list. All I want to say is if you've never really been exposed to Preston Sturges films, I would say go and watch some of the other films. I'm surprised that Hail Hail the Conquering Hero is not on this list, but you're right. It makes fun of the military. I also just feel like there's certain movies that just get selected. Like we've talked about this a lot on the AFI list. That is deemed as good. That's what we're putting on the list. Is it the best? I don't know. It's on the list, though. I think that Duck Soup is better than Night at the Opera, but I would argue that Night at the Opera is the movie that most people associate with the Marx Brothers, in, if you're not familiar with the Marx Brothers. And I feel like this movie is the one that is associated with Preston Sturges, whether or not you've seen it. And I don't think it takes anything away from him being a fantastic director and amazing writer and this movie being perfect. But I wonder if you had a more accessible film on this list of one of his films, uh, would he gain a little bit more in popularity? Because I think his movie's stand toe-to-toe with Billy Wilder films.
0: I mean, would you be okay if we added another Sturgis film in and I was put in say that, the yes. film that I feel like I would put on this list instead of Chinatown? And us honestly, if it was on this list in place of Sullivan's Travels, but another person Sturgis was on, I would feel okay because I think it also makes the same point. That is a film, tell me if you were thinking about this as you were watching it, called... Who Framed Roger Rabbit?
3: I would put Who Framed on here over this. And and then as long as we get another Preston Sturges, I'm okay with that.
0: Right? And I was thinking about it because there's, I think there's so much love and struggles in that movie. You know, not only is there a scene where you have um, Roger Rabbit watching Goofy and having that same moment that you have here. Like, here's a guy, here's an artist. He always makes me laugh. Uh, you also have a moment where Roger Rabbit flat out says the theme of Sullivan's Travels.
2: A left can be a very powerful thing. Why, sometimes in life, it's the only weapon we have. I mean, that's that's
0: Roger Rabbit raising its hand and saying, I am every movie that you love. Just put me on the list, please.
3: I, I am on board for this because I think my whole issue with Preston Sturges is people in our industry know him, but he is not necessarily, or at least this is my perspective, up there with Capra, Wilder, uh, in in those same conversations, and he, he takes made... so many
0: shots at Capra in this movie. Too. Oh
3: uh, no, I, I mean he Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, by the way, a lot about Lubitsch too. Who, I mean, I mean Billy Wilder had such a thing with Lubitsch, which I thought was so funny that that's. Oh my gosh! Uh,
0: I hope if people haven't seen Lubitsch, go watch Trouble in Paradise while you're locked in, and you will die. You'll be so
5: happy.
3: Oh, I'm excited to see that. Uh, but I, I just, I think I really get upset that this is a director who is not in that Mount Rushmore of great directors outside of a certain grouping of people. And and uh, it bums me out because his movies do hold up. They're very, very good. I don't know what else to say about it more than that, but I just feel like there is something that bugs the shit out of me because I feel like he made an equal amount of great films. It's just sort of like he's that person that that just kind of gets a little bit, the, he gets the, you know the short shrift.
0: No, I agree, and I wonder if it's because he, oh, God, I was about to say, like, he came in like a wrecking ball, but like no, he, like, came in, he blew up, he did so many amazing films in a short amount of time, and then he fizzled out really fast, just boom. He, like, did it, and he was gone. And I don't know if that means that there was this waft of failure around him, which kept people who loved and cared about his movies from being like, ah, no, he deserves it. Like, he had that kind of stain. Right. You know, we're like, ah, yeah, like he wasn't as safe of a bet as somebody like Billy wilder to to say to vote for. right.
3: But I also agree that I, I but I also would just say it one more time that by putting this movie in the front, it alienates people. I think Hollywood movies alienate people to a certain degree, right? Like I you know, I think that it it embraces people in our industry embrace it, but people outside of it I think have a harder time in. I think that just goes on over and over and over again. And because this is the entry point movie, you probably don't go to seek out other ones. You know, this is the movie that you hear at the front of all the conversations about him. And look, if he made eight great movies, that's better than some directors in, you know, have made in their whole career. You know, that's better uh, like than most direct- directors. Yeah. Most directors yeah. on this list or not most, but a lot of directors on this list made like one or two good movies. And he had like a, you know, he had a run of like that little bit of time. It's like Stephen King, like popping out and look, I know Stephen King, yes, don't get on my case about Stephen King, but like he had that era where it was like, here are these amazing horror classics, and every now and then you get another good one, but it's like it was just sort of like this amazing thing of like art just kind of comes out at you in a very aggressive way, you make it, and then yeah, it goes away, art comes or he doesn't ass, have to bro. but it's like, yeah, but I mean, to do all those movies so quick, back to back, like he just, he was running at it, not running out of time, but he just kind of just chase them down. I don't know. That's, that, that's what I've been wrestling with this whole yeah. episode. I love the theme. I love the performances. Yeah. I love everything. Joe McRae, we didn't really talk about him that much, but this film was written for him. There was nobody else considered. He was, I think a perfect, he has the perfect, like, likability for somebody that you don't, that is not a likable person. Like you buy him as this guy, but you also can see that he is like, he's not like, he's not trying to are like, this couldn't have been Jimmy Stewart. You know what I'm saying? And, I love Jimmy Stewart, but I think there's something about his his whole energy that feels like you're a rich dick, but you also are a likable rich dick.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, Joe McRae himself was like shocked that Preston Sergis wrote a script from him. I mean, I think Joe McRae's quote when Sergis said he's going to write a script from him was like, nobody writes a script for me. They write a script from Gary Cooper. And then when he doesn't do it, then they call me.
3: That's hilarious. Which
0: is so beautiful. And I want to talk just a second more about Veronica Lake because I love her so much. And she winds up having kind of an an inverse celebrity life. You know, I mean, do you know how much about what happens to Veronica Lake? No, not much. No. So she comes in hot, right? I think when she makes this movie, she's 19, maybe 20. Mm -hmm. She's very young and she is, boom, huge, massive, overnight. Veronica Lake, everybody loves her. She comes in, she does a few movies, and then she's considered washed up by age 25. She leaves Hollywood for good when she's 30. So when she's like, she has her moment that this actress does in this movie when she's 30. She leaves, she's found a couple years later working in New York as a as a bar waitress, you know, as a wow. bartender, really, in a hotel, you know, living in a hotel that's like seven bucks a day. And she's kind of fine with that. Everybody's like writes these like crazy, like horrible tragedy thing pieces about her, like Veronica Lake is a bartender now is a story that right. runs in newspapers. People start trying to send her money, and she's like, I'm fine. I just hated Hollywood. But she's fascinating. You know, she comes in here, and she's one of those people who's kind of considered difficult in the way that Faye Dunaway is, which she may have deserved, may not have deserved. You know, she was really young. She was an alcoholic, for sure. I was thinking, you know that scene where she's by the pool here with Sullivan, and she's in the bathrobe? Mm -hmm. And they're by the pool? I was wondering, there's that famous picture. We might've even talked about it of Faye Dunaway the night after she won her Oscar in a bathrobe, oh, yeah. in a chair, by a pool. And I was like, were they drawing that Veronica Lake comparison then? Because the oh, hair is the same, the outfit is the same. I don't know. It kind of it was uncanny when I saw that here. There's a couple reasons that she says that she had this really ra- quick rise and fall in Hollywood. And one of them is because of her hair. She always believed that her hairstyle made her famous because nobody had hair like that. And then when the war starts... It's like
3: the uh, Rachel.
0: Yeah, it's like the Rachel. And then when the war starts immediately after that, her haircut is considered dangerous by the government because they said, like, women... No, you haven't heard about this? Oh, my God. Okay, let's talk about it. Okay, because she has this hair. It's very long. She starts this trend. Everybody gets the Rachel, right? You know, everybody gets the Rachel of then, which is the Veronica Lake. But all these women, because the war starts, have to go to factories and do machine equipment. And they're wearing this hair and it gets caught in the gears of the machines and the factories. And it starts like pulling people's hair out and like slowing down production. So the U.S. government, I am not making this up, makes Veronica Lake start wearing her hair back so that other girls will start wearing their hair back as well, that they can kill the Veronica Lake hair trend. They make her do a TV spot about it. TV spot. They make her do a film newsreel spot about it. and they make her start wearing her hair back. And oh, I actually pulled a clip. Okay, here we go.
8: Before the war, Veronica Lake's one-eyed hairdo established a style that swept the feminine face of the country. Veronica's witchlock received the stamp of approval from young girls the country over. In a changing world, however, a change of hairstyle was indicated. Not bad on a dance floor, perhaps, but this lake's eye view is entirely out of place in a war production plant. Valuable time is lost on a futile gesture. Uncontrolled hair will never stay in place. The operator is exposed to the constant threat of hair caught in the machine. In addition, the rhythm of precision work can be seriously upset, resulting in faulty work. Miss Lake has now decided to put Glamour in its proper wartime place and face the world with both eyes in the clear. Her hair is out of the way, combed in a simple but becoming fashion. And girls all over the country who are taking up war jobs are following her lead once again. In fact, they're going Miss Lake one better by covering their hair completely with safety caps.
0: The U.S. government made Veronica Lake change her signature hairdo that was so signature it is the only artwork on the poster of Sullivan's Travels And then her career started to tank. And she was always like, it's the war, the hairdo. They made me get rid of my thing. I was not the same person. Also, it didn't help that she had, she made a lot of enemies, to be honest. Like Raymond Chandler would call her Moronica Lake. You know, she, I I don't, they say she was not very nice to work with. Um, I think she had a lot of the same sense of humor of her character here, you know, who's just like calling out people's bullshit, making fun of the entire system. She doesn't seem like she wanted to be a movie star. Like, I lo- Can I play the scene where she buys um, eggs for Sullivan in the diner and she's kind of bitching about Hollywood? Because when I hear that, I kind of feel like I hear Veronica Lake talking about how she really felt about Hollywood.
4: Pearl necklace or a fur coat or a country seat or even a winter seat. I could use a new girdle, too.
5: I wish I could give you some of the things you need.
4: <laughs> you wouldn't be trying to lead me astray, would you? You know, the nice thing about buying food for a man is that you don't have to laugh at his jokes. Just think, if you were some big shot like a casting director or something, I'd be staring into your bridge work saying, yes, Mr. Smearcase, no, Mr. Smearcase, not really, Mr. Smearcase. Oh, Mr. Smearcase, that's my knee. Give Mr. Smearcase another cup of coffee, make it two. Want a piece of pie? No, thanks, kid. Why, Mr. Smearcase, aren't you getting a little familiar? I
0: mean, she has this sense of humor about Hollywood and about being beautiful that I think you see in the whole movie. You know, she's like licking her fingers and fixing her eyebrows, her absolute lack of vanity. I don't know,
3: Amy. I don't know. I just I just don't like these women with personalities. (laughs) I just think it's better to have women that are interesting to look at. Like, you know, you could take your Grace Kelly's, you could take your Veronica Lakes and who don't care about the system. It's like I want women who look pretty and are really desperate to be in the system, not that they could live or die without it. You know, and I I have to say also, I I respond to uh, this hair thing because the government made me check, uh, cut my hair. I had full length hair and they made me cut my hair after uh, I did uh, the first season of Human Giant. So that's something I do. I I know it's still going on to this day. Oppression,
0: uh, man. Oppression.
3: Yeah, oppression, oppression. Yeah.
0: Honestly, uh, but, you know. I want to say because I, know, I love sticking up for Veronica. Like, and I feel like somebody has to because she died when she was fifty-one of alcoholism. Um, mm-hmm. That she wrote an autobiography, or ghost wrote, or had somebody ghost write an autobiography for her called Ver- Veronica, which is really great. And I pulled this clip of her on um, the Dick Cavett show right before she died. It's really right, pretty close to right before she died when she's older. And I feel like when you listen to him interview her, you get the sense of a guy who doesn't know that this woman is being interesting or funny, and he tries to make her sound boring because he doesn't get the level that she's talking on. And it, I, found it, I found it such a frustrating interview, but I pulled two clips. And the first one is Ronica Lake talking about how she felt about the way Hollywood tried to create her image.
5: Were, were, are you, were you as cool in those days as you look in these photographs? You look like the coolest person in the world.
4: I think about the only thing I could say about that, I probably, mm-hmm. they didn't have that expression at the time, but I was probably the original teeny bopper Really? because yeah. I was so frightened. Yeah. This was the facade of the coolness, the cold and mm-hmm. the whole bit that I think rather than a sex symbol, I was a sex zombie.
5: Yeah. What a strange phrase. <laughs> sounds like a drink made with an oyster or
0: I mean, she's the type of person who laughs, head thrown all the way back. Definitely sounds like she drinks too much in her life, but her pleasure in living is so evident. And then later on, he asks her about leaving Hollywood.
8: All
5: right, Veronica, let me ask you a blunt Rushing question. Are, are, are you bitter about the way your career and You've
4: got to be joking. No, I'm not. No.
5: You're not? No. Would you rather have done your life a different way if you had... No. No.
4: Wouldn't exchange it for anything in the world. There's only one thing that I must say about this, when I say I left, it was not out of bitterness. Mm -hmm. It was not cynicism. I guess I had a career in reverse. I was a star first and learned to live afterwards.
0: She does have this kind of look to her of like the woman who traps you at the bar with all of her stories about life. I just want to keep hearing her stories, though.
3: No, I mean, I I really am engaged by her. And I think we've had some really great. I mean, these last two weeks have been great women uh, that have very similar trajectories. I I think, you know, Grace Kelly gets to go off and become a princess. uh, But, you know, I think that Veronica Lake kind of shares a similar sensibility. Like, I'm done with this. I guess she, Grace Kelly, chose to leave and Veronica uh, was asked to, or I guess was escorted out.
0: It's true. I mean, but Veronica had her chances to, I mean, Howard Hughes tried to win her over. Aristotle Onassis, who married Jackie O tried to win her over. And she just, she actually had a fucking fun amount of time being a bartender in New York and making no money. Like she had this independent streak that I really love about her. Her last husband was a fisherman named Captain Bob. She was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I, I could have been Jackie O. I'm with Captain Bob.
3: Amy, I guess there's only one question left to ask. Is there Simpsons?
0: Ish. I, Ish, 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 ish. Here's the thing. The Coen brothers make a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Great for them. But you know who did it first? The Simpsons. Who? Because in 1991, The Simpsons did a whole episode called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And in that episode, it's not quite about Sullivan's travels, but it is about the gap between the rich and the poor. And what happens in here is Homer realizes that he has a long-lost brother who is incredibly rich. The brother brings the entire Simpsons family over to his mansion and there's a touch of that tension that you see in the way Veronica Lake feels when she goes over to Sullivan's house.
1: I'm the little
6: hellraiser sir. Would you like to hold the baby, Herb? Oh, I'm afraid I wouldn't know how. So no <laughs> much to know. Just dive in. Catch! <laughs>
1: God, that new baby smell. Homer, you're the richest man
6: I know.
4: I feel the same about you.
6: While you're here, I want you to make yourselves right at home. Anytime you're hungry, anytime day or night, cook will make you anything you want. Even pork chops? Absolutely. We have a tennis court, a swimming pool, you a screening room. I want pork chops even in the middle of the night, your guy
8: will fry them up? Sure.
6: That's what he's paid for. Now, if you need towels, laundry, wait, maids. Wait, 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 wait. Let me see if I got this straight. It's Christmas Day, 4 a.m. There's a rumble in my stomach. Homer, please.
1: <laughs> your old man sure loves pork chops. <laughs> he sure does, Uncle Herb.
0: It's, uh, that, and so, I
3: don't Is that Danny DeVito in there?
0: (laughs) That is Danny DeVito. That is an excellent DeVito catch. Excellent DeVito catch. But I just want to say that I appreciate that the Simpsons were bringing it back, bringing back the Sullivan's travels before the Coen brothers did, before it was on the AFI list. And actually, now that I think about it, I wonder if the main reason that it did get voted on after 97 is because the Coen brothers reminded people it existed.
3: Oh, that's really interesting. I love that idea. And look, They could bring attention to it. And I think that they they are following in the similar footsteps. I, I agree that like sometimes Hollywood gets so up its own ass about celebrating itself. But even when the Coen brothers does it, I mean, obviously, A Brother where Arthur isn't about uh, Hollywood. Hail Caesar is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like that movie also is wider than just a Hollywood story. I, I don't know. There's they They are, I mean, I'm happy to say that they're taking the tradition of Preston Sturges. If you're a Coen Brothers fan, you'll be a Preston Sturges fan. And I think, honestly, if you're a fan of ensemble comedy and like some of these great ensemble comedy directors, like you will see a lot of Preston Sturges in their work. I think people have been influenced by him and what he was able to do. It's not showy. It's not camera techniques. It's really just performance styles. It's creating an ensemble. And I think, to me, it's always the most interesting thing. I talk about John Hughes being like Preston Sturges to a certain extent as well because he creates this this camp of familiar faces and directors and just kind of rotates through them. And and it has like, um, a hominess to it. You know, like this is, this is a, a director running a little bit of a camp. It's, it's Marvel movies of comedy.
0: It's true. So my challenge to any 100 film list is that you have to have a Sturgis and a Cohen, honestly, because how awful is it that when they redid the list in 2007 they added the Sturgis, but they took off the Cohen Brothers Fargo. We need both, man. Uh, we need one of ours, a generation, one of that generation. Come on.
3: I know. It's the worst. It's absolutely the worst. Well, this has been so much fun talking to you, everyone isolated. We're recording this later than we normally record it, so, uh, so this is kind of a, a late-night version of, of Unspooled, but yeah. I had a great Unspooled time talking. Unspooled after and love dark.
0: To maybe- Can I read out that you drank a wine and I drank a whiskey as we
3: tape this? Oh, yeah. By the way, I drank a canned wine. So just to make sure <laughs> everyone knows a canned wine. Um, I'll just say this, that, uh, you know, Amy, if you're up for it, maybe at one point we can revisit another Preston Sturgis film, because I feel like there's a lot out here that we like. And, and if people are interested in that, let, let us know, because I would love to tackle another one and just talk about, uh, you know, uh, kind of get into him, because I feel like he is an underrated filmmaker. uh more than most of the directors that we've talked about on this list,
0: I would die to do that. I think the only hard part about that is which one would we do because they're all so good,
3: Amy. Next week, we are doing a real counterculture cult film, Easy Rider, one of the coolest movies. If you were hanging around in the 60s, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, even an appearance by Jack Nicholson. And we were thinking, I know that many of us are stuck at home right now, and that is a good thing. But if we were to fantasize, who would we take with us on a road trip, and where would we go? We just have two hogs. That's what I call my motorcycle. And where would you go? Where would you go out on the open road, and who would you go with? Who would you get in your hog with, Amy?
0: I did go to the bar that the wild hogs go to uh last year for my <laughs> birthday um the, the whole wild hogs town is a very much a wild hogs memorial I had one of the best cheeseburgers of my life so props to wild hogs. oh wow all
3: right i, I love that i love that you went to the wild hog <laughs> you made a wild hogs pilgrimage of course uh well give us a call at 747-666-5824 that's 747-666-5824 and tell us what celebrity you want to go on a road trip with and it's in the continent of the united states so tell us where you want to go on your hog (laughs) all right we will see you next week for easy rider